electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Claire Odimodi. Today on our podcast, billionaire Ron Barron with one very long call. You're going to have 35 times your money over the next 50 years. The Dow Jones, which is now 34,000, will be 900,000. The legendary investor on his portfolio. There's opportunities now in companies like Tesla, opportunities in SpaceX, Twitter, but in smaller companies like Figs, like Krispy Kreme, they have been ignored uh, with the technology focus of the market, and uh, there are opportunities in those companies. And Baron on the CEO he believes in, from EVs to cage matches. I would never bet against Elon on anything. Plus, 3M settling billions over Forever Chemicals. I mean, it affects that. It's not just people that live down a mill. This is anybody drinking water in that area. The latest in the crypto chaos around Sam Bankman-Fried. This is what happens when you're trying to claw back money and trying to get back the money that you think FTX customers lost in the process. And a glitzy White House state dinner packed with CEOs. What was on the menu, Zima? Do you know how many courses exactly? It's Friday, 6-23-23. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back by in three, two, one. Cue it, please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. 3M now agreeing to pay up to $12.5 billion. That's to settle hundreds of lawsuits now brought by cities uh, that said that their drinking water was contaminated with what they're calling, quote, forever chemicals made by the company for decades. Tentative class action settlement will cover public water systems across the United States. Uh, that cities say were contaminated by chemicals in 3M's firefighting foam. It follows similar settlements by DuPont and two other companies earlier this month. It's a big number. 3M saying the agreement isn't an admission of liability, and if it isn't approved by the court, the company is prepared to defend itself in legislation. And you've seen that stock uh, move higher this morning on the back of what would seem like bad news as good news. Yeah, Becky? There, there were a lot of concerns that that this could actually force them into bankruptcy at some point. So even though it's a huge settlement, I think the idea that they are finding some sort of a settlement is why you're seeing a little bit of relief in the stock this morning. Lawyers all over the country are are celebrating. That's going to be the next mesothelioma. I don't know. Lawyers are already making more than bankers. Andrew, did did, did you guys see this? No. I, I saw that. I saw that. Uh, big numbers. Being uh, a banker isn't isn't so. Being a bank be, being a banker is like being a lawyer today. Unfortunately, couldn't you be? Well, like fortunately, a, I don't know. I, I, look, you know, I'm a family of lawyers, so we like lawyers. Couldn't you be a a, a banker, lawyer, banker, a lawyer slash banker? There's a lot of them around too. I think. Like that's uh, that's that was what that article was keying off was, which was Robert Kindler, who we've had on the program many times, who's now gone from being a lawyer to being a banker to being a lawyer again. Back to a lawyer where he can make some real money. Like up up to ten supposedly, but the days of there was the, the good old days were when you could do an IPO and be an analyst. That, those were when the the bankers really made right. 
That's when they really made a lot of money, like five, ten million a year. Now the managing MDs make one to two million. I mean, that's why New York is dying. You can't live on. <laughs> can't get out of bed for that kind of money. What about this, though? Will it? I mean, how how far back does I, I cannot turn on the TV without seeing uh, Camp Jejun and, and oh, Mesothelioma? Yeah. What? When do we know? Does this become something like that? I mean, think about like, yes. how many people are. How many places I have used? Not. How many fire places have used these things? I mean. That's the stage and, for it. I mean, it affects that. It's not just people that live down a mill. This is anybody drinking water in that area? Well, I, I <laughs> so that's what they say. Don't... I don't know. I don't know. You can only hope, hope it's not the case. Right. Okay. Well, just wondered. Distinguished guests, the President of the United States and Dr. Biden and the Prime Minister of the Republic of India. Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi met with President Biden and U.S. tech executives and others at the big White House state dinner uh, last night. And he'll meet with more tech executives at another meeting this morning. Seema Modi joins us now from Washington. Good morning, Seema. Joe, good morning. Last night's glitzy state dinner at the White House featuring prominent guests, including Walmart CEO Doug McMillan, Apple CEO Tim Cook. Mr. Tim Cook and Ms. Lisa Jackson. Hi, great to see you. Google, Sundar Pichai, Indra Nui, among others. Guests were treated to a vegetarian-forward meal and a speech by the president where he reiterated the strength of the U.S.-India relationship. Toast to our partnership, to our people, to the possibilities that lie ahead, to two great friends, two great nations, and two great powers. Those comments come as both India and the United States face pressure from China. Now, Biden and Modi, they used the meetings yesterday really to focus on defense and economic interests. And while also sidestepping issues tied to Modi's handling of human rights and the country's continued purchase of Russian oil. We are hearing a select group of technology CEOs and investors will meet Modi today alongside Commerce Secretary Raimondo and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan to discuss a roadmap on how to shift production from China to India. General Catalyst CEO Hemant Tanasia, who will be attending the roundtable, tells CNBC as political and business leaders, we can take a step in the right direction at today's roundtable by aligning on efforts to streamline te technology transfer rules between our two countries. We are in a digital Cold War with China, he says, and this approach will ultimately foster an atmosphere of increased cooperation. The meeting, guys, I'm told, is, begins at 10.30 a.m. Eastern, artificial intelligence, and again, finding ways to make supply chain more resilient are among the topics up for discussion. Joe? Do you, Seema, are you uh, aware of, of, like, substantive agreements that, that have been done between the yeah. president that I've heard things about there's still tariffs that we have and trade uh, inequities that, that go on with India. I, I hear there are some things, there's some progress being made in some areas, even agricultural. Yeah, that's a great point. On trade, we haven't seen as much progress. India still has high tariffs that U.S. companies face when they're trying to do business there. But on the, from the corporate lens, there have been a flurry of deals, Joe, from the GE aeronautics deal, uh, India buying high-grade drones from General Atomics, a U.S. private company, not to mention the semiconductor space, both Micron and Applied Materials announcing yesterday significant investments in India as they look for ways to diversify away from China. So uh, those would be among the top deals announced thus far. 
Very good. All right, Seema Modi. Um, how what, what what was what was on the menu, Seema? I I do you know how many courses exactly? Did you see? Did you actually see a menu? Do you know? I was reading uh, that there was about three to four courses. It was a vegetarian-forward meal because Modi himself, known for being a vegetarian, uh, there's a new type of grain that India is trying to promote. It's called millet, and that specific grain was featured on the menu along with uh, a lot of other fancy vegetarian dishes. Not Indian food, which actually I was a little surprised by, uh, but again, seemed like a, a nice meal. 400 guests, 400 guests, including a lot of the big CEOs that we bring on CNBC on a regular basis. Yep, yep. Looks as you said, glitzy. Looks pretty glitzy. That's where you can use that word, I think. Thank you, Seema. A new development in the collapse of crypto firm FTX. The bankrupt firm has sued Michael Kivas, his firm K5 Global, and the firm's co-founder Brian Baum, seeking to claw back $700 million in investments allegedly made with misappropriated FTX funds. Sam Bankman-Fried authorized the payments to K5 Global in 2022, describing Kivas as probably the most connected person he had ever met and a one-stop shop for political relationships and celebrity partnerships. Kivas served as an aide to Hillary Clinton when she was a Democratic senator from New York and worked for a Hollywood agent to Arnold Schwarzenegger and singer Katy Perry. FTX says that the investments made by SBF enriched Kivas and Baum with no payoff for FTX or its customers. As evidence, it cites a $214 million investment in Kendall Jenner's tequila brand at the time when the brand's assets were valued at less than $3 million. K5 says that the lawsuit is without merit, and they believe that they were entering into a fair, long-term, and mutually beneficial business relationship. But, uh, guys, it just kind of brings up these ties with Hollywood, with politics, and a lot of the ways that, uh, you know, it's been alleged that Sam Bankman-Fried was trying to win favor and win customers and ultimately co- trying to call on some of them when the firm got into trouble at the end. Right. There's no question, Becky. The interesting, pa- the interesting part about clawbacks, though, as you know, mm-hmm. um, is if you believe that the deal, whatever deals were structured, were fair deals, it's actually very hard to claw back money. You can't just say, uh, you know, I went to a restaurant, I ate a meal, and uh, the restaurant should give me the money back. It, it only, you can only get the money back typically if the restaurant, if, if you can say that the restaurateur, if you will, uh, knew that they were serving a patron uh, that was involved and that, that the money effectively was ill-gotten gains. I mean, so I, I read I the complaint. Exact- I read the complaint and they'd go really far out of their way to try and prove that. They, they basically lay out that Kivas went to a party or Kivas invited Sam Bankman-Fried to a party where he met a lot of important Hollywood types, a lot of important political types, and then he got to go to the Super Bowl with him, and that he immediately turned over, I guess, the $214 million, followed by about $300 million, followed by another couple hundred million dollars that added up to around $700 million. And they basically said he got nothing for it, and these things were put into shells. It's going to be a complicated case for the lawyers to figure out. Um, But this is what happens when you're trying to claw back money and trying to get back the money that you think FTX customers lost in the process. My guess is it's probably not the only suit we'll see along these lines. So he, he, right. I don't, no, no, we, but I think the hard part about all of these cases is, is proving, you'd have to, you need to prove effectively that the other side, the people that he made deals with, knew that he, that knew what was happening at the firm. And that's, that's mm. always the hard part. Yeah. Um, and when you look right. at what um, obviously K5 um, is now saying, it's more complicated. Yeah, it's, it's, this is know. not going to be settled anytime soon. Um, but the 
the complaint you know, just gives you a lot of fodder for what everybody's been speculating to this point, just in terms of connections that were made and such. So it's, it's, it will probably make some hay um, from the gossip so we, side. Of we, we said something about a, a, his relationship with an agent. He was an agent. Yeah, he was at an CAA. Agent. At CAA. Yeah. yeah. So who was his buddy, Brian? Brian Baum, I don't know. He's his partner in K5 in the investment. No, but I wonder they said he had a connection with some famous agent at the, the, in right. your he, copy. He is, he is the agent. Oh, he is he, the he agent. Is the, he was the agent at CAA. He worked there for several years. We know these guys, these agents, some of them. <laughs> you know the agents. Yeah, they're bigger than life, half of them. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod. I've been in this program for 17 years, so because of you, people recognize me everywhere. It's just amazing. Investor Ron Barron, Squawk Box celebrity. I'm walking to work the other day, and a woman comes running at me. Barron, you're that really cool guy on CNBC all the time. We'll be right back. Picture this. It's Saturday morning, and you're on your John Deere compact tractor. You're effortlessly breaking ground on your new landscaping project. Next, you're moving piles of rocks just by moving a lever. And now, you're enjoying the warmth of the sun as you clear brush across your pasture. We could keep trying to put you in the moment, but to really understand everything you can do with a John Deere compact tractor, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Today, the Squawk Gang spoke with longtime investor Ron Barron. He is the chairman and CEO of Barron Capital, which has more than $41 billion in assets under management in companies like Charles Schwab, SpaceX, Krispy Kreme, and Hyatt Hotels. Barron has been a big and consistent Tesla bull, and his stake in the electric car company is worth about $4.5 billion. As usual, Barron shared his Tesla and Elon Musk story, his market outlook, his investment insights, his thoughts on Twitter, and of course, some personal stories. I'll hand things off now to Becky Quick. Tesla has been on a big run the last few months. It's up 115% so far in 2023, and our next guest is one of Tesla's biggest shareholders. Joining us right now in an exclusive interview is Ron Barron. He's the chairman and CEO of Barron Capital. And Ron, it's good to see you. It's good to have you here in studio. It's great to see you too. Uh, so I just want to say before I left home, uh, my wife says to me this morning, I don't want you telling any more of your weird stories. <laughs> that, that was going out the door. <laughs> don't tell any of your weird stories. And so just one little story. Uh, uh, I'm not going to tell you this. The other one I'm going to tell you later. Yeah. Uh, I thought we were going to end the interview right now. If you, if you can't do any of your, uh, what are we going to talk about? So, so the first thing is I want to thank you. So congratulations, Joe, on your Bitcoins. Uh, amazing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, number one. Number two, uh, I've been in this program for 17 years. Lori Ann just told me 17 years. So because of you, people recognize me everywhere. It's just amazing. You know, say thank you, walk over to me all the time. I'm walking to work the other day down Park Avenue. And a woman comes running at me. I'm going north, south, and she's going north. She comes at me, and she grabs my horns, and she says, thank you, thank you. I love my smile. I said, well, I'm not your doctor. And she says, well, who are you? 
And I said, well, I'm, I'm Ron Barron. And she says, Ron Barron, you're that really cool guy on CNBC all the time. <laughs> yeah. Well, you must get that a lot. <laughs> Pretty amazing. Right. That, that's, uh, that's the weirdest story. It's all relative, too, Ron. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. So what do you want to talk first? you want to talk the broader markets picture? Or do you want to talk Tesla and the run-up of that? Let's see. Well, so, so I just want to mention for a second about, I'll talk about that in just a minute. I know that's where you want to get to. But uh, yesterday or the day before, I was watching your show, and you talked about ESG and how uh, a lot of states are passing legislation or trying to pass legislation to say you shouldn't consider those factors. I should only consider how you can make the most money. And I would point out that we do consider those factors. We do consider good governance, how you treat employees. If you're not treating your employees well, uh, how are you going to retain them? Uh, how are you going to hire the best? And how are you going to uh, keep them? How are you going to train them? So basically, uh, we're interested in these things, and also we're interested in making sure that the companies in which we're investing uh, haven't got these risks that I, we're not aware of. So we, do, we are conscious of that. And to argue against the idea that it's not important about how much money you're able to, uh, only making most money is what's important, uh, that we've been uh, conscious of this. And because of that, we've outperformed. So 98.8% of our stocks have done, of our funds have done better than the market, and 45.5% uh, are in the top 1%. Not only in the top 1%, uh, but number one in their categories. And Barron Partners Fund happens to be the number one performing mutual fund in the United States since 2003 when it became a mutual fund. So, so we have been able to perform well, taking let, into account these. Uh, let me just say though, ESG. I think it depends on who's using it and how they're measuring it. Obviously, you're not going to say you're against the environment. You're not against social or governance issues. Um, but sometimes people get in and measure things in crazy ways. And I, I think oh, a I lot agree. of the pushback comes from the bureaucracy that comes from this and the greenwashing that this is used to dress up or dress down other places. And I think part of the problem comes from you know, big institutional shareholders who have said you're going to do things this way. and. It's not their money that they're even talking about. I agree. Well, cases. we're not like that. Yeah, I, I, I think it's. It, I think this argument gets so convoluted because it really depends on what what you're talking about when you say ESG. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Anyway, so we are conscious of how companies act and how they treat people and how they treat shareholders, and so uh, so we're aware of all these things. Um, our business, uh, we keep expanding. Uh, we've never had a layoff in the history of our business, so therefore, uh, people feel comfortable working for us. They trust us. Uh, and we just keep growing. Uh, so we're now 197 people, 45 are analysts, portfolio managers, uh, and uh, we do the best we can for our clients and we do the best we can for uh, our, our customers uh, and uh, our, our, our employees and shareholders. And so one of the things I think is really important is that uh, we don't worry about the stock market, we don't worry about interest rates, the economy, what the government's gonna do, wars. Uh, uh, in my whole history, there's never been uh, a good news year, with one exception, when they took down the wall in uh, between East and West Germany. That's it. One good year from a whole career. And uh, yet, uh, the stock market in this whole period of time, uh, with terror attacks and inflation and wars and pandemics, uh, with all of that going on, the stock market is up 34 times since 1970 when I began my career. It was 1,000 then, it's now 34,000. And the economy, by the way, in that whole period of time, it's also up, uh, it's up 33 times. It's gone from $800 billion of, of GDP uh, to 26 and a quarter billion. So despite all this stuff, everyone talks about all day long and trying to figure out what's gonna happen, uh, the market's up 33 times. And what I think is growth is now beginning to accelerate 
And over the next 50 years, compared to the last 50 years, I think that you're going to have faster growth uh, than 7%. But uh, assuming that you get the same 7%, that means that you're going to have 35 times your money over the next 50 years, which means that the Dow Jones, which is now 34,000, will be 900,000. Uh, so, so when everyone talks about, well, is it going to be 32,000 or 33,000 or 30? I'm thinking about 900,000. Why do you think faster growth over the next 50 years? Because there's a lot of people who think, let's say, over the next 10 years, you could see much slower growth than 7%. I mean, that's been the concern for a long time. Well, uh, inflation is 4 or 5% of that 7% growth. And real growth has been 2%. And all the growth that's really happened in the world has taken place in the past uh, 20, 30, 40 years. And, uh, and that's accelerating so because of technology. So you expect inflation, but you expect inflation to be higher too? I expect inflation to be as it always has been, as it has been in every single democracy that's ever existed, 4 or 5% a year. So I think everything is going to uh, you know, be twice as expensive in, uh, in, in 14 or 15 years than it is today. So it might touch down at 2 or 3%. Uh, but even Volcker, when he left in 1986 or 87, even then it was down to 3% from 18 or 19. We've gone from 9 or 9.5 to four or four and a half or something like that. So maybe go a little bit lower, uh, but it's not going to stay lower. And it's, it's part of our, uh, of our economic program. And supercomputers and AI, I mean, the, the quantum advances we're going to make in healthcare and technology, and they're coming quicker and quicker. That's the whole Kurzweil idea, is that it used to, you know, might, might have taken a million years for genetic material to yep. aggregate. Now it's happening in 10 and 15 and 20 years. Look what the internet did. Think of 10 more internets between now and, and 900,000. I know. Days. Who knows what's going to be, but it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, I'll settle for, what'd you say, 32 times your money? 35, 34. I'll settle for 34 if I'm there in 50 years. Is that, uh, <laughs> if I'm there I'll, to enjoy I'll be 130. it? 130. Uh, <laughs> are, are you, um, ruling that out completely? I don't think we Not should. completely. I mean, uh, they, they used to talk about 120 years is the, where you're going. Yeah. But I don't know. A glass of red wine might help. I don't drink. There at all. No, nothing? Yeah. No. Not since college. <laughs> Not since college? <laughs> but college, I was turning parties. And anyway, so back to Tesla. So, uh, so I start uh, in 1970. I come to New York. Uh, I'm in debt. I'm living in my friend's basement and $15,000 in debt, uh, unemployed. Uh, and then in 1982, start Baron Capital. Uh, we had $10 million under management, $10 million. Uh, now we have uh, 41 and a half billion and 40 billion of that is profits and I've gone from having minus $15,000 of net worth minus 15,000 uh, to my family and I owning 6.9% of the assets that we manage uh, and uh, so it's down from where it was in uh, you know in November of 2001 and I say that what we're going to ha what's going to happen is we're going to be back to where we were at the end of 2025 and then we'll be back to our trend of doubling every, uh, you know, every five or six years. So that means in 2035, I'm expecting to be six times as big as we are now. So Tesla, Tesla. you got into this back in 2014, right? 2014 was your first purchase of Tesla? So I met him in 2010. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and when I was interviewing, and I say we invest in people, bet on people. And uh, when he was at our annual meeting last year and I was interviewing him, he says, uh, well, it took you quite a while to invest in me. It was four years, actually. So in 2010, I met him, followed it. 2014, after the stock had gone up, I don't know, three or four or five times, six times. At that point, we started investing. And we invested. Why? What, what finally dragged you in? 
Um, well, I kept following and kept going to visit him, and uh, finally he was telling me, gee, we're going to grow 50% a year in units as far as the eye can see. And he was doing 31,000 cars a year then, 31,000 cars. And ultimately, uh, you know, we, we had this meeting for a couple hours in Fremont, and I walked away with Mike Lippert, and I said, man, I can't believe I don't own this yet. Stock was uh, $80 on the way to 200 up from 25 where it come public. And uh, then we've split since then. But anyway, yeah, you've ridden this. I mean, we're looking at the long-term stock. You've ri you rode that all the way up. Yep. You were in it all the way down, but then back up again, which is what we've seen this year. We're well, not quite all the way down. So we invested $380 million, and, uh, and we made about $4 billion so far. Wow. And we've uh, cashed in about a billion and a half. We sold for clients uh, uh, 6.8 million shares yeah. three, three years ago at $225 a share. Uh, up 15 or 20 times, and uh, and we now have 17 and a half million shares, uh, and uh, and I think we're going to make six or seven times. I think it's the stock is now 225, 230, 50. I think it's going to be 500 in uh, 2025, and I think in 2030 it's going to be 1500. That's my targets. I, I think when you sold, you sold because you were worried that it was becoming such a huge part of your portfolio. It had risen so much, and I think at the time you told us you wanted to. It was part of your mandate as your funds. You couldn't have one stock be such a big part of your portfolio. I wanted people to know that I hadn't died. And, uh, you know, that's why they still own the stock. So I just, you know, and, and, and I was getting criticized for being such a large holding. And, for, and I don't normally buy stocks. Uh, I haven't really since 1992. I've been investing in our funds. And, uh, but I am allowed to buy uh, private companies. And I have a big investment in SpaceX. But in Tesla... Uh, I own personally 5 million shares. I bought it after all of my uh, clients had bought their, uh, their stock. And, uh, and I said to the board of our mutual funds, I said, look, I'm not going to uh, buy stock uh, in, for myself any longer. I'm only going to invest in our funds uh, and in private uh, deals. But uh, in this instance, I think we're going to make 20 times our money. I'd like to invest $50 million. And, uh, uh, and if that works out, uh, then Baron Capital will be stronger financially. Uh, and if it doesn't, I can afford to lose. It wouldn't be pleasant, but I will take the chance. And I said that uh, if you approve this, uh, I'll, I'm the last person to buy. I'm not taking anyone's opportunity. I tried to get everyone else to buy, and I wasn't that successful. Um, I'm the last one to buy, and I will be the last one to sell. I will not sell a single share for myself until I sell for all my clients. Uh, last in, last out. Okay. And so I bought for the clients. We sold about a quarter of their stock. I haven't sold a single share personally. It's, it's now $4.5 billion, your holdings in Tesla. That's more than 10%. If you've got $41 billion in assets under management, it's now more than 10% of your funds. Does yep. that get you back to the point where you start to worry it's too big again? Would you sell again for your clients so you're not holding, so you're not too beholden to one stock in your funds? Um, it's a little bit less than 10. Um, I think that, uh, uh, no. It's not, it's not anywhere near. I, I've been very careful about explaining to people about uh, the funds that do own this stock and the clients. The clients periodically call up and they say, you know, it's a little bit uh, too much for me. Can you sell a little bit? Whatever they ask, I'll do. And I told them, I think that you're going to make uh, from these levels a double in the next three years. And you're going to make uh, after that, you're going to make uh, you know, to a triple again. So, so you can, I think you're going to make seven times your money over the next uh, seven or eight years. Andrew's got a question too, Andrew. Oh, I'm gonna hey, get Ron, to why. I was, so, I was so, so curious if you'd explain what your thoughts were on this opening up of the charging stations that Tesla is doing. It's such a remarkable thing, and I think great for the country 
uh, should be good for Tesla, but could cut both ways in that it's also creating opportunity for Ford and General Motors? Um, I think that it's not that big a deal economically uh, for Tesla, uh, but it's going to make more charging stations available so people will be less uh, worried about buying an electric car, thinking that uh, they will be able to charge it wherever they go. Most people charge their cars at home at night, uh, so it, I don't think it's that big a deal. But it will, it's 4,500 stations right now uh, and 45,000 uh, chargers, uh, plugs. Uh, this is better technology, it's faster technology, it's going to make people... His whole idea is to transform our country and the world uh, to, uh, uh, to electrification, to electric cars. And this is helpful. So basically, you buy a Ford, you buy a General Motors car, you're going to be able to charge your cars and not worry about it because there's going to be a lot of stations you're going to go right. to and it's going to, make, uh, it's going to make it clearer that this is a really coming thing and you have to... Everyone's going to... You know what, what's really interesting as well is that uh, you know, most people would perceive Tesla as a rich man's toy, as a car that's very expensive. The average car in the United States is now $48,000 a car. $48,000 a car. Last year, Tesla cars were $50,000 without a subsidy. This year, they're $40,000 with a $7,500 subsidy, and therefore, they're $33,000. $33,000 you can buy a Tesla where you're buying a regular, and that's like a BMW, better than a BMW 3. And so, uh, so uh, the Tesla Y is the, uh, is the biggest selling car in the whole world. The Tesla Model 3 is $33,000. And you compare it to any car. So this is not a Toyota Corolla or a BYD. This is a Tesla. And when you're buying this car, you get an amazing value. So it's absurdly cheap, $33,000 for a car. Uh, and people don't realize how cheap it is. So, so number one is really cheap. Number can I talk about the growth opportunity? And yeah, I just want to make sure we get to some other stocks, too. So we okay, so I'll do... Yes. Okay, I'll, I'll be conscious. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so the idea is there's only 6% of cars that are now electric, uh, and uh, so there's 94% that aren't. Uh, there's also a 2 billion car fleet. 1% uh, is, is, uh, is uh, electrified. So there's a really big opportunity for growth. Number one, the charging stations. That's an important deal because... Everyone's going to now uh, you know, know that they can charge their cars everywhere. Insurance, that's another thing that just helps people buy cars. Uh, Tesla's return on investments. So most companies, when they make an investment, they make a 15% return on capital. That's target. They won't make an investment unless they can make 15% return on equity uh, on, on the investment, on capital. Uh, Tesla, when they were making a profit of $15,000 a car, they built a plant for a million cars, and it cost $7 billion. And that plant would make $15,000 in profit a car. They're making $15 billion on a $7 billion investment. Ron, let me, let me just interrupt for a second. Morgan Stanley, Adam Jonas, yesterday, he's been a big bull on this stock for a long time. He downgraded it because he said the price is just too high at this point. Still likes the company, but just says it's run pretty far pretty fast. Adam's clients are hedge funds. And basically, we sold our, you know, so it's in, unusual that the stock went down the day before. Uh, it, his, Wait, his, are you his, suggesting the hedge fund clients had that information well, the day before? You, no, I have no idea. But you're talking to someone all the time uh, who has an opinion, an you know, analyst, and, and he's trying to generate brokerage commissions. I, I'm trying to be a long-term investor. Long-term investing, that's what we're about. And so, so when the stock goes down like it did last year, you don't worry because you figure eventually it's going to right-size again? The most amazing, I was not worried. 
And, but for clients, uh, you know, the stock went from 300 to 100. Yeah. It's now 225, but it, 250. It's the same price it was that it was three years ago, and the business is three times bigger. The business is three times bigger now. Now they're going to do a million, eight, two million cars this year. Three years ago, uh, they were doing 500,000 cars when I sold, when I sold our uh, 6.8 million shares. So basically, it's the same price it was three years ago when the business is now three times bigger. And so a guy could say, I have no idea if it's going to be higher or lower in the short term. You know, Elon spoke in Paris at a conference uh, last week. And he was with uh, uh, the, uh, Arnaud's son. And Arnaud's son said to him, Elon, uh, you know, our businesses in the aggregate, LVMH, are, are 6,000 years old. Six, you're a teenager. How can you stop? When are you going to stop embarrassing us? Uh, with, with your market cap. And he says, you know, valuations are funny. Who knows? Um, Let's talk about a couple other stocks, too. Other things that you like. Krispy Kreme, why? Um, Krispy Kreme has uh, uh, the, the idea there is that uh, it's very expensive to build a Krispy, Krispy Kreme store, uh, but they have 11,000 uh, places where you can, you can buy a Krispy Kreme donut, uh, fresh. And now... Uh, Stores within a store, basically. Yep. Yeah, uh, Walmart. Target, McDonald's now is doing a test. And so they thought that there was 11,000 opportunities for uh, points of presence. Uh, they had 11,000 now, 11,800 uh, on their way to 50,000. And uh, now they think it's on the way to 70,000. And that's probably not even it. But every time they invest, uh, I guess, a few thousand dollars uh, they, in, in one of these uh, stores that, uh, you know, with the stands that you can go in and buy the donuts, uh, every time they make those investments, uh, you can generate somewhere around $500 a week in sales. And that's $30,000 a year, five or $600 a week. $30,000 a year with a huge profit margin on, on a business that is, uh, uh, and, and you're going to be adding 70,000 of them. So you're going to have potentially another $2 billion of revenues on a $2.5 billion business. When did you first invest in Krispy Kreme? Um, this past year we've been investing in it. Um, it's around the price that we paid. I uh, guess about fourteen, fourteen and a half dollars a share. Yeah, it's come up for December thirtieth. It was trading at ten dollars and thirty-two cents. So it's risen sharply. You you bought in at the beginning of this run. We've averaged priced around fourteen or fifteen dollars. It's it's right around here. Uh, you know, so so I think that so there's opportunities now in companies like Tesla, opportunities in SpaceX, uh, opportunities even I think there's going to be an opportunity in Twitter. Uh, but in, in smaller companies uh, like Figs, uh, like, uh, like uh, uh, Krispy Kreme, uh, they have been ignored uh, with the technology focus of the market. And uh, there are opportunities in those companies right now, I think. With Twitter, obviously a lot of sound and fury around that. It's a private company now. You're an investor in it because Elon asked you to be. Um, there was a Pew research study that came out last month that said 60% of U.S. Twitter users have taken a break from the platform in the past year. They point out that that dates even before Elon took the platform over. Um, so it's not necessarily blaming him for any of those things, but the fickleness of adults maybe coming out of uh, the pandemic when you're not using social media as much, maybe not, maybe moving on to other issues. What makes you think that there's an opportunity there too? Well, uh, first of all, he didn't ask me to invest. Uh, that, uh, you know, he's made us so much money and he was buying. Uh, you asked him to invest if you yeah, could? Yeah, I said, yeah. you know, I'd like to invest and we invested $100 million. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's not that big a deal for our clients. It was uh, $65 million for uh, funds and $35 million for me. And, uh, and I thought that 
it was speculative. He explained how he thought we can make three or four times our money in the company, and I hope so. Uh, and, and now that he has uh, hired Linda, Linda uh, Yaccarino, I think she's spectacular, and uh, she's going to be a speaker at our annual meeting this year. She is pretty great. Yeah. Yep. We know her well. So I'm, I'm excited about her. And, uh, and Elon uh, gave a recent presentation. He was talking about how, uh, or maybe she said it, I don't recall who, uh, that in the past uh, six months, uh, he's uh, made more substantive changes uh, in Twitter than have been made in 10 years. And so the, so the, the, the focus is on, on video. The, the focus is on uh, uh, you know, moderation. Uh, with technology and, and all those, uh, there were six agencies uh, that had spoken at this conference in Paris where LVMH was also a speaker and uh, they all had pause on, test, on, uh, on Twitter before and they've all removed the, the, uh, uh, the pause. So everyone is now uh, okay to invest in, in Tesla again and in, in Twitter again. But you can't. It's a, I mean, who? Uh, to invest in Twitter. To, uh, you know, to advertise on Twitter. Oh, to advertise. So the advertisers okay, yeah. are all coming back. So cyclically, that was depressed, and now cyclically, it's coming back at the same time all those people who paused are now no longer pausing, and they're now uh, engaging, and I think that uh, they will come back. They weren't even doing any targeting. There was, it was very poorly run when it was a publicly owned company. I would assume it will be a publicly owned company again at some point, three, four, five years from now. I don't know. Uh, but... Uh, you know, we're studying it, and we're trying to make sure that if, if we do think it's a really good opportunity, uh, that we do make a big investment in it. Right now, we're watching. Okay. Ron, I want to thank you for your time. Um, always a pleasure seeing you, and we really appreciate you coming in today. Thank you. E Elon is like 30 or 40 percent bigger than Zuckerberg, but Zuckerberg knows martial arts. I mean, do you have a, in the cage match, do you... Elon's like 6'1", I think. Yes. He's, he's lost some weight, but he's like in fighting shape, I think. He feels bigger than 6'1". But Zuckerberg, uh, Zuckerberg supposedly won some medals in, in martial arts. Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Yeah, I don't know. I, you don't I, have, do you who have would a, you do bet you have a horse on? In this who would you, I would never bet against Elon on anything. So you think he's going to kick Zuckerberg's ass is what you're what you This is saying. like a serious thing. I don't know. Thing, oh, by the way, I didn't, I, I have so many ideas right now. Uh, I, have, I need more money. I have so many ideas. I can't. To bet on this cage match? Not to bet on the cage. interview's already over. This was a throwaway conversation at the end. We're not moving I, back to talk about more. I don't really bet on uh, stuff. Okay. I'm, I'm where I don't have any. DraftKings might You're have it. You're an investor, it, not a gambler. Is yeah, that what we should say? Right. All right. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive. AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. That's our podcast for this Friday. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Catch them weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And you can always get the best parts of our TV show by following Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Have a lovely weekend, and we'll meet you back here on Monday. We are clear. Thanks, guys.
From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 